Hello and welcome to the Trips and Global on Wheels podcast hour. I'm your host, Ming Canaday. Trips and Global on Wheels is focused on sharing resources and insights into disability advocacy, fitness and health, and accessible travel. Our mission is to build a community of healthy, worldly, and informed advocates. Each week on our podcast, we interview someone with a disability or someone whose work advances the disability rights movement, both locally and internationally. Hi, everyone. I am so excited to announce today's guest on our podcast show. Her name is Dana Vollmer. She is an Olympian swimmer. So Dana was raised in Granbury, Texas, and found great swimming success at a young age under Coach Ron Forrest at the Fort Worth area swim team at age 12 years old she was the youngest swimmer competing at the 2000 u.s olympic trials in college under coach terry mckeever dana won four national titles and played a key role in bringing the the university of california golden bears their first ncaa national team title in women's swimming Dana's Olympic career started in 2004 at the Athens Olympics, where she won gold as part of the world record-setting 4x200-meter freestyle relay. After a heartbreaking miss of the national team in 2008, she came back in 2012 and won three gold medals while setting two world records at the London Olympics. Her world record in the individual 100-meter butterfly of 50 55.98 seconds was the first time a woman swam the event under 56 seconds. After having her first child in March of 2015, Dana returned to the pool and quickly regained her place among the top swimmers in the world. At the 2016 Rio Olympics, she won bronze in the 100-meter butterfly, silver and an American record in the 4x100-meter freestyle relay, and gold in the 4x100-meter medley relay. Her gold in 2016 is USA Swimming's first ever gold won by a mother. Dana is one of the most gold medaled female U.S. Olympians of all time, currently ranked fourth. Throughout her incredible accomplishments, she has endured setbacks, injuries, and even seven weeks of bed rest during her pregnancy. She draws from these experiences for her own inspiration and also uses them to help motivate others. And with that, let's listen in on that conversation with Miss Dana Vollmer. Dana Vollmer, welcome to the Trips and Global on Wheels podcast hour. Thank you so much. Of course. So as I was telling you earlier, Jean is joining us from Melbourne, Australia. And I'm joining you from Washington, D.C. Jean, do you want to give a brief introduction for Dana? Yeah, sure. Hi, Dana. I'm Jean. Uh, keen to hear your story. Um, I know you've had a lot of uh, success in sports and also uh, had an interesting time with uh, working out a gluten-free diet, uh, which I've also had to do. Really looking forward to hearing how you per- persevered uh, through that. So thank you for that. So the first question is regarding family and parenting. What do you think your parents did right in terms of helping you reach the highest of heights in your sport? You know, you've set world records. What characteristics and values did they cultivate in you that enabled you to have the skill sets and attitude to be the best in swimming and in turn in life in general? You've had quite a successful life, I would say. 
In other words, what advice do you have for parents who also want to raise their children to be the best in whatever they choose to do? Yes. What did my parents do right? I think they, I mean, they obviously did a lot right. And, uh, you know, I think a key part is what you just said in, in whatever your child chooses to do, be the best in whatever they choose to do. And my parents were really big on that, that as a kid, I did gymnastics, soccer, swimming, volleyball, track, um, just, we were so active and they were extremely active with me. Uh, my mom also swam. She coached my, my dad was always working on like the physics of movement with me and, and would be the one sitting down and doing homework with me. And they were very engaged. And, you know, it was one of those that if we started a season, we had to finish the season out. And there was a lot of discussion on, on doing the best that you can on, um, trying to set yourself up well for practice, for swim meets, for tests in school. And they were good at tapping into what I loved about it. And the same thing applied to school, that it wasn't that we sat down at the kitchen table to get through the nitty gritty of doing homework. Like my dad came across so excited to learn the material that I was learning even if he probably already knew it, that it made me excited about the material. And I got to explore and live through not only sports, but the academic side with my parents and their interest in what I was doing. Mm -hmm. And yeah, one thing I also heard that seems really key for you is that it's you felt like it was something you chose to do, right? Especially during the hard moments when you've been training for so long and, and the results aren't what you were hoping for, especially when you were, was it the 2008 Olympics you were aiming for and didn't make it? Yeah. Yes. And, you know, so much effort went into that. And it, in order to continue, it had to be something you really wanted. Yeah. And I mean, it definitely goes back and forth. Like I put so much, pressure on myself as a young kid. And that's something that I'm currently talking to athletes and, and wanting to speak more about is this crazy bar that I had set for myself that was just out of reach always my entire life. And so it was one of those like to consider myself on kind of a daily basis as failing, as not reaching my optimal goal. Um, but then to also know that you know, I did choose swimming. There was so much that I loved about being in the water and about movement and feeling fast. And so in terms of choosing the sport, that it that was my choice. Like I, I in eighth grade, played basketball and actually tore my ACL. But in that transition, chose swimming. You know, I left on my own terms from gymnastics and volleyball. And that was what I wanted to pursue. And it wasn't from, you know, the age of seven, like, like I said, I played basketball through eighth grade and kind of in high school is when I started narrowing down on exactly the sport that I wanted to pursue. And, but then in the meantime, to have that balance of, yes, it's what I chose to do, but these crazy high expectations and pressure and anxiety and learning how to cope with that took a long time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, I think one thing that also helped you, I, I did a little bit of research and is that you took a larger view, you know, you, you went to Fiji and because of the high drowning rates over there and taught people how to swim. And even though that, that's at a very basic level, it gave you a 
larger perspective to aim for and to yes. focus on. Yeah, it was really a game-changing trip for me that in terms of pressure and anxiety that I had, I had linked my self-worth with competing on an Olympic level. And when I missed the Olympic team, I really felt worthless that I, my point of being on, on the planet was to reach those levels of swimming. And I felt like I was doing it for a lot of other people. And then to go to Fiji and kind of realize that I was in this, this bubble that I had built myself of my self-worth being defined by sport and accolades in sport. And to travel across the world and realize that it was so much bigger than that, that the skills that I had in the water could translate into saving people's lives. And to just have that bubble pop, like I was just in my own world of self-pity over missing an Olympic team. And then to see right directly in interacting with the Fijians and teaching them life-saving skills, then they could go into their villages and to know that that was the impact that I wanted to make, the connections, the relationships, like that it just completely changed my outlook. Yeah, that's amazing. And it sounds like you have an amazing coach too. I know you brought Terry McKeever up um, again and again in your interview. So that's, that's amazing as well. So tell us about the power of mom. What, what is it? I actually didn't read that much about it. So what is the message you want to send out to the world through it? Yeah, it's, motherhood isn't limiting. It's not stopping us. It can be an, another element of fulfillment and joy and love and that it doesn't mean that the mom's dreams go on, on hold. That I feel like it put life again, another layer of perspective of what I want for my kids, the mom that I want to be, showing them the steps in, that go along the process of, of being successful and following your dreams and being happy as a person, that it was one of those when I stood up on the blocks as a mom and to know that my little 17-month-old baby could care less if I won or not and just wanted a happy mom to come home, it just, again, took off another layer of pressure and expectations. And it, it brought in that bigger picture of working towards being happy and confident in myself and in my life. And that that's what I want to bring to my kids. Mm -hmm. That's that's great. So the next question is regarding being a mom and being pregnant as well. I know you were training while you were pregnant with your second son, right? Riker, I think. How was training while you were pregnant for the I believe 2016 Olympics, were you nervous for the health of the baby training at such high intensity? So that's where I think, you know, there's a, a little bit of, of misinformation is I wouldn't put it as training like I used to. Um, I worked very closely with my doctors. It was very much, you know, what my, the level that my body was used to training at. And then to step in and know that every day I was assessing how my body felt and what it could handle that day and wasn't, you know, oh, I need to be doing this this day to reach the Olympics. And so that's what I'm going to push myself to do. It was, what, what can I do today to get better? But that is in that realm of very safe and healthy for me and the child. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you for that. Because I don't think even today there aren't enough of a community out there of you know elite athletes, especially moms, and thinking that after they have a child or are pregnant can can achieve those kind of goals or strive for those kind of goals. So it's great to have such examples. It was really about putting it. I felt like it was the healthiest approach I had actually had to the sport, and it was completely about health. And again, that switch in priorities that I wanted to be an amazing mom. I wanted to breastfeed and I wanted to come back after he was born. And I, it wasn't about just getting as lean as quick as I can, getting as strong, getting as fast as I was before. It was this process of seeing the pool as an escape where I kind of got to got to feel like my old self again and and get in tune with my body and new ways of strengthening. And I had a a friend, a nanny that came with me. And so I would jump out and I would breastfeed him in the middle of practice. And then I'd get back in and, you know, and so in terms of getting back in shape after being pregnant, it was more about supplying my body with the nutrition that it needed to, to nurse my child first, and then to sustain myself through workout and feel good and strong in my own skin rather than what I wanted my body to look like quickly. Mm -hmm. And it also creates a balance in your life as well. In terms of, so what is the advantages and disadvantages of having a diagnosis such as this heart condition, the cardiac electrical disorder or gluten allergy or other food allergies you have that is invisible to the outside world? How does this impact how outsiders look at you or how you perceive yourself and the, and the stigma that is attached to it either by you or, or the people on the outside? Yeah. What's really hard is that nobody, like you said, it's invisible. Nobody can see it. And so the perceived amount of, of stress and anxiety that it caused me, that it caused my mom and the, the going through the diagnosis and knowing that my mom was sitting there with a defibrillator and that it was a constant thought in my mind but because it's not visual, it's not a constant thought on other people's minds. And you know, different activities um, we would do underwater training. And you know, if you started either getting dizzy or like tingly feeling, uh, my mind went to heart and went to what that could be in terms of my heart rhythm. And you know, we don't that training. We don't do a lot of that anymore these days. But um, in terms of the food allergies, like it wasn't until 2011 that I discovered that I was needed to be gluten-free and egg-free. And it was, I had always tried being an elite level athlete to eat how I was supposed to. And much more textbook, you know, three meals a day, two snacks, this many carbs, this many vegetables, this much protein. And it was all based on someone else's literature and to really have it switched on its head and have it be about how food makes me feel and to not be diagnosed with celiacs, but to know that when I eat gluten, I instantly feel swollen. I feel achy. I get migraine headaches. uh, I get incredibly constipated. Like it just seems to affect everything about me. And then 
I eat eggs and my stomach just inflates and feels like it's being stabbed, but yet it's not the normal anaphylactic response that gets classified as a food allergy. And so when I go to restaurants and I order food and, and I'm pressing about gluten and I'm pressing about eggs and the ingredients and I get asked a lot, like, well, is this like more of the fad diet or is it celiac? And to have to try to make that distinction to people, like, do I just say it's celiac because that's the level that, that I treat it as, or do I have to then try to justify in this gray area? And, you know, when it's not anaphylactic, it's not, so it's, it's hard when I even have to say that I don't have an egg allergy, I have an egg sensitivity. I tend to put emphasis and say I have a very extreme sensitivity to eggs, but it's always hard in that gray area of people think it's either a certain type of allergy and you have an EpiPen and there's a certain response to it, or it's just, eh, you just don't like it, or, oh, it just makes you feel bad. And no, it's, it's, there's a lot more to it than that. What you just said paints a vivid image for us of what 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 it's like to 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 have that kind of allergy and people not understanding just because prior to six months ago I, I just thought of it personally I'm, I'm very guilty of this I thought of it as a fad and people are just you know following a fad so anyway the next few questions is on food allergies and uh, your gluten diet so I'm going to kick off with the first question under this topic my question is, so you lived with stomach aches for years and years from the food that you were eating. How did you explain away that pain and what made you finally have it checked out? Because it was so present in your life for so many years. I had stomach aches almost pretty much every single day. And when I was training at such an elite level and dealing with, you know, an and torn ACL, dealing with a shoulder injury. There, there was always something that was bigger than me continually saying, I have a stomach ache. I have a stomach ache and we don't know why. I, I, I still have a stomach ache. Like it just, it started to feel like it was not being solved and I didn't know what to do. And, you know, it was at the time when you would carbo load when I was a kid. So we would go before swim meets and we would eat this huge thing of spaghetti and then wake up in the morning and trying to eat well, I would have an omelet and wonder why I felt terrible. And I felt like I had actually learned how to swim without using my stomach because more often than not to actually engage my abs was painful. And it was at swim meets. I've actually gone to the emergency room now three times with severe stomach ache. I thought that my appendix had ruptured and I get to the hospital and, you know, I haven't shared this with that many people, but I get to the hospital and they tell me, sorry, you're gassy. And I was mortified. I was absolutely mortified. And it's like, oh, okay. Like, how do, I t how do I talk about that? How do I tell anybody that? And so I would end up saying like that I had food poisoning or something. And to have dealt with that for so many years and to finally find out that it was a sensitivity. And as soon as I took it out, the stomach aches were gone. And I felt 
felt so much better um, that, you know, the, again, that fuzzy line between an, a legit allergy and a sensitivity is just very, very real. And I feel a hundred percent better in my skin than, than how my stomach felt before. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you. So now we're going to transition to Jean for in Melbourne. It must be all these unspoken stories that people have similar to that because uh, it brought back memories of uh, when I was playing cricket and in a similar type of fashion, uh, you know, my parents would give me a big dinner and, uh, and then before the game I'd have wheat picks, which is just complete, you know, it's like a wheat biscuit and then a big yam, which is just a big... Um, chocolate milk and I'm sensitive to all that and I would just have the most horrible day <laughs> but not really be able to share that information with people so yeah it, it, it there must be a lot of people who would also struggle with that and perhaps won't have even realized uh, the link just yet so uh, again I, I really see the value in your in sharing your stories uh, now that and I'd always just been too embarrassed to really talk about it at the time and uh you know, I remember sitting at a table and talking to a group of elite athletes that were just friends of mine and saying how much I hate eggs. Like I've, I've just never liked them. And was that my body telling me that I shouldn't be eating eggs? And to be told, like Dana, like eggs are critical in your diet for being an elite athlete. They're such a good source of fats and proteins. Like you need to just force yourself to eat them. So I did. And uh, to find out so many years later that it was causing a lot of problems. And, you know, I had always just kind of a, considered myself not a trainer is what I used to say, that I could pour into a workout, but then it would take me a lot of time to recover. And once I figured out these food allergies, I was able to turn around so much better from practice to practice. And just to feel healthier and leaner. Um, I, my brother and I, so my brother actually has the same allergies and we just always had this puffy look about us. And we were like, we thought that was genetic. Like we're just, as much as we work out, we don't look lean. And when we both took out gluten and eggs, it was just like our bodies could process what we were eating. And I got so much stronger but leaner at the same time. And I was able to recover from one practice to the next and my endurance just improved dramatically. Fantastic. That covered almost all my questions. So <laughs> I'll see what, what, what more I have left, but um, I'll, I'll start with this one. So uh, once you did implement your gluten-free diet, uh, did you experience a noticeably faster improvement in your swimming, um, both mentally and physically? Uh, and did those improvements also um, translate into things around you, like with, uh, with your sleep and your recovery, of course, but also your relationships with uh, the people close to you. Yeah, I think that's an area that I know my brother and I talk a lot about is the, the link with eating gluten for us and mental health. And we had both struggled with depression and I still notice it today that if I somehow eat gluten, that I end up, I'm just, I'm overwhelmed with my two boys and, and the noise and, and just everything seems hard and I have so much on my plate. And like when I don't have gluten, it's not as severe. And so we've definitely made a connection between when we have gluten and symptoms of depression. And 
just in general of feeling so much healthier, helped me sleep, helped my recovery. And it was one of those, like, it was scary at first. Like, you know, I, I, you get told you can't eat gluten. It's like, well, what do I eat? And to really learn that there's so much food out there that is naturally gluten-free, that my house isn't just packed full of gluten-free products, that it's full of rice and vegetables and, you know, all these different grains and lentils and beans. And it just really expanded my knowledge of what I can eat and feel healthy putting into my body. Definitely. It also helped me uh, think more about my food a bit more critically and, and expand uh, what, what I should be looking forward to eat uh, just day to day. In fact, I was going to mention, Ming, for, for any listeners or people watching, uh, that uh, to get diagnosed, um, especially with celiac, uh, you might want to see a doctor before you stop eating those foods. Because what I found was after eliminating gluten from my diet for a month, I was told to reintroduce it because you have to be sick in order for it to be diagnosed medically. Uh, which means that um, things within your body need to be even biopsied to confirm um, a celiac uh, disease. But that, that is also a little bit different to sensitivities and things which are maybe unknown or not confirmed uh, in literature just yet. So um, it, it, it is important to see a doctor and uh, make those decisions early. But yeah, for people like me, I'm not willing to do that extreme type of test and go through that type of pain uh, just to know that I shouldn't be eating things which I'm already not eating because it makes me feel better. So th there, there is, a, I guess, a bit of a spectrum of you know, uh, celiac to sensitivity to things unknown. But in the end, I think um, you know, doing your own diet testing uh, is beneficial in both uh, or in, in any of those circumstances, which is important for uh, people to know through other people's experiences. Yeah, I ended up, I did do the biopsy at the very beginning, which was told that I didn't have celiac. And then we did a blood test that then came back with a list um, of basically seven foods that I reacted to. And so I was working very closely with a nutritionist and we took out those seven foods. And after about a month, then in isolated amounts, we tried those foods and I could see how they reacted with me. And so instead of just this state of not feeling well and feeling puffy and swollen and stomach pain, we eliminated all of it. And so that's how I can say when I eat gluten, I feel swollen and, and constipated and migraines and the signs of depression and eggs makes my stomach inflate. Um, tomatoes makes my entire mouth just so raw and I get really bad heartburn. And so it was, it was a new way of looking at the foods that I eat. And when we narrowed it down to, in terms of sensitivity, it was like, well, I knew what I was getting into. If something had, has small amount of tomatoes, I know what, what to expect. And if I choose to eat that. <laughs> I get horrible headaches, but once you keep a food diary, it all makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a whole different kind of food diary. Like I was, I was just talking to a group of kids about this, that, you know, at one point in my career, I was asked to keep a food log, but it was very scrutinized on calories, on what I was eating, on my percentage of body fat. And, 
it was like turning in part of my life and just being judged on it. And it was a terrible relationship with food. And, and then to have that flipped and to have a food log that it's not so much about the amount and the calories and, and the macros and things like that. It's like, yes, I have my food, but then onto one side, it's how do I feel and what are my symptoms? And then starting to see patterns that, okay, every time I eat this food, it gets linked with a severe migraine the next day. And without having that log, I might not have been able to make those connections. Yeah, it's very important. And it, it can be very difficult. And sometimes you need the support of the people around you. But I can see from your success in the pool that it must have been worth it. And uh, definitely for me, it changed a lot of things. Like I said, even in relationships around you, your mood is better. You can explain things more clearly. Uh, it, it really has a profound effect on, on, on your life in general. Yeah. And it does have its challenges. You know, like when we all get together at Thanksgiving and you know, my in-laws have been absolutely incredible and just really dove in. It turned out, uh, so my sister-in-law is gluten-free and dairy-free. And then my um, sister and my other sister-in-law's husband has Crohn's disease and is very, you know, sensitive to a lot of different foods. And so we just really, she really latched onto that. And our, we have so much fun coming up with these big family meals that meet everybody's allergies. And instead of looking at it as like, oh, we can't have this. Oh, it's not Thanksgiving if we don't have this. It's like everybody just took on this challenge of, wow, how fun can we make this meal while incorporating everybody's allergies? And then there's people that seem to, to forget. Like my mom seems to forget a lot and she'll give me something. She's, oh, oh I forgot it has gluten. And so it's, it's just, it's interesting to see uh, how it changes kind of the family and how, how we set things up. And you can really tell people that are like, really, like, can you not have just one bite? Can you just taste it? And they just don't, don't understand the, the feeling that it creates within me and the pain that that causes. And that, no, you know, that bite of whatever that food is, like as good as, as hot pretzels in the airport seem to always make me want one of those pretzels from Auntie Anne's pretzels. Nope, I won't do it. It's not worth it. Definitely. Yeah, actually, that, that's probably very similar to my next question, which was, uh, did you become a subject matter expert, uh, expert uh, for the athletes around you? Yes and no. Like we had one other girl on an Olympic team that was gluten-free and it was way easier when there was two of us. But again, I think without having the diagnosis of celiac, it was actually hard to, to push for that. That, you know, they, they usually had options for the team, but to, to have them really take food allergies into consideration was really challenging. And it wasn't until like 2011, 2012, the 2012 Olympics did a fantastic job. All of the ingredients were labeled at every single station in the, the dining hall. And that made it so much easier. But when we're traveling as a team and they had caterers come in, it was more challenging to get them to know that, no, you can't just have a big pasta meal. Like I, I need something else. And to be by myself in those moments, trying to push for food that makes me feel strong and healthy was more challenging than I thought it would be. And with 
more awareness on how many people are affected by food sensitivities and how much food impacts performance, obviously. It's, it's getting easier and easier. Yeah, maybe I'll wrap up with that question that relates to the future of uh, food in sport. Like, do you think that we've come far enough in terms of uh, managing for people's sensitivities and allergies, or do you think there's more work to be done? I think there's more work to be done. I think in terms of how athletes are taught about nutrition, how athletes interact with food, um, the availability for so many different allergies and different people's allergies on airplanes. It's, it's definitely, we have a lot more work in front of us and to understand what goes into it. But I, I, we have come a long way. And it, but it's something I think the more that we start to look at the relationship of how food interacts with our bodies, that people themselves can begin that journey of figuring out what food works for them. And even with my kids, you know, I take note if if there's something when they seem to say that they have a stomach ache, I don't just brush it off, that I take note of what we ate that day, what they ate yesterday. And, you know, we, my kids, they, they go to the bathroom. They're like, oh, mommy, I need more water. Like this looks this way. And I'm proud of that, that they're aware of that and aware of what they're eating and that my five-year-old and two-year-old know the words gluten and uh, can tell me what what products have dairy. And it's starting to bring that awareness that people, everybody is an individual and reacts different, differently to food. And just because it's not something that you can see or that was not a specific diagnosis that we shouldn't judge that person and how food reacts to them and what makes them feel healthy in their lives. Definitely. I have some more questions regarding this topic and some of them are kind of personal. So were you ever dismissive of the possibility of being celiac due to external stigma and prejudice? When I first started learning about celiacs and growing up in a very small town in Texas, you know, I didn't even really know what gluten was at the time. And especially being told that I'm not celiac by the time that I got, got tested, it was all just this big unknown of what's actually bothering me. And is it gluten? Is it not? And to almost feel, I don't know, kind of like a fraud in saying that I need to be gluten-free without actually being celiac that those were the distinctions. Do you have celiac or is it just preference? Um, it's, it's that hard gray area to navigate and to not be celiac to then feel like I am classified under the fad diet and I'm just following trends or I'm just trying to be leaner and trying to cut out carbs and to feel like my symptoms that were very real and very painful for me were oftentimes dismissed. On the other hand, you do have that type of question come up at a cafe or a restaurant. You know that they are taking their food seriously, which is a very good thing if you're about to eat there. You have to also put to aside your, uh, your own feelings about how uh, you have to explain things. But um, I, I found that you want to eat at those places because they do actually make an effort. 
Yes. Yes. Places that have it all, all the ingredients listed out and go the extra mile. And it just seems like, yes, of course, like we will do this for you. It won't have gluten in it. I, I go back and the places that make me feel like I'm a hindrance or they're annoyed that they have to get a different pan that didn't cook eggs in it to cook my food in. Not, not as much. Yeah. Well, they're not getting your business an Olympic world record holders business. It's a big deal. So did you know any other people with celiac who you could talk to at the time after you were diagnosed or even before you were diagnosed and you had an inkling that may be the case? I did not know anybody. It's only been through more being vocal about the food sensitivity that I've gotten to know other people with celiac and other people with the sensitivity and wanting a group that, that will really talk about food sensitivities is something that I'm still searching for. Those that are in that middle gray area and don't feel like they fit into these categories. Mm -hmm. But now there's more of a community that since you've talked about in the media and do you feel like there are experts not only at a professional level and but also at a personal level they could go to, not just outside of the immediate family that you were just sharing earlier? I've, I had such a great relationship with my nutritionist that I went through all of this with. That was fantastic. Her name's Anita Nall, and she was actually an Olympian as well, and then just kept being sick and couldn't perform and nobody knew why. And it wasn't until later that she found out that she had all these food allergies as well. And so she's really been on a mission to, to educate athletes on food allergies. And it, we often don't, you might not know, or like I was in this cycle of just getting injured all the time and not understanding why. And could it be the food that I'm putting in my body is weakening me. And so I'm straining it to such an, a level to be an elite athlete that I'm ending up injured all the time. You know, I still think that that's an area that needs to be improved is the support system for athletes, but for, any, for anybody that's going through either the celiac diagnosis or a, a gluten sensitivity diagnosis. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think it's so important, and, and I'm very happy, as I've said a couple times now, that you're so open about talking about this, because, you know, even though for someone like me, even, I'm, I'm very open about learning new perspectives and everybody's uh, diagnosis and race and disabilities and whatnot, I had not even heard of it until six months ago and didn't know how to spell it or anything, and so, and, and it's also a hidden diagnosis, it's a hidden um, under the Americans with Disabilities Act is classified as a hidden disability. And so if people don't talk about it, then nobody's going to know. So my next question, was, which isn't exactly relating to what I just said, but did you feel anger at not finding out sooner? How did you feel about having lived through so many years of this misdiagnosis? I mean, in a way, it kind of relates because if people had talked about it more, and there was more information in the media, you would have probably been diagnosed earlier. I do get upset, especially having been to the emergency room three times. Not once, but three times with severe stomach pain. And each time being sent home with just this, I don't know your, your gassy diagnosis. And to be so frustrated that nothing was helping 
and everything that I read and trying to do things right. And, you know, we had taken out dairy because at the time I felt like people were talking about lactose intolerance. And so I would take cheese off of my omelets and wonder why I still felt so, so sick. And um, it's frustrating that I feel like stomach pain in particular is oftentimes dismissed without really diving into what the cause of it is. And, and I know that that's challenging because so many things affect people's stomach with stress and uh, workloads and food. And, and there's just a whole array of things, but that, that has to start being talked about and explored much more readily. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, so with this diagnosis, you know, this gluten-free allergy, you were almost forced to pay closer attention to your food. Did it make you think about social and environmental issues differently? Examples such as food safety, health claims about food ethics of food production, etc. Yeah. And uh, thinking about, you know, man, yeah, how food is made, that even a naturally gluten-free product like oatmeal that you don't know the factory that it's made in or what was what was in the machinery before the oatmeal started being packaged and cross-contamination and it was something that I had thought about actually from the opposite side of drug testing for sports and understanding the process that goes into packaging multivitamins and the risk of cross-contamination and multiple brands using one facility and so I knew about it from that sense but then to to not really understand how food is produced and packaged and everything. And, you know, it was challenging for so many years to not know. And then to go to my freshman year of college, I was having so much stomach pain again, but then it was in their efforts to bring down my body percent of my fat body percent at college that I was told to not eat carbs for the month of December and I had to write down everything that I ate and I was turning it into the nutritionist. And for me not to understand why I felt better, like, was it just because I wasn't eating carbs and then to go back to eating carbs? And, and I was left in this, this state of feeling very unknown about anything that I put in my mouth. If I didn't eat anything, my stomach didn't hurt. And the fear in that of any, everything I see on my plate, not understanding what's going to make me feel sick and what doesn't. And what that does mentally around our relationship with food and around our relationship with our bodies. So much food hurt me. And to not know why I felt swollen and puffy and sick. And then a, a random nutritionist is telling me to not eat carbs. And for some reason I feel better. And being told to eat eggs because they're good for me and not understanding why it's hurting. And just to have that view of my plate of just completely of fear of not understanding what's going to hurt me and what's not shouldn't be that way. Yeah. No. Um, I'm just interested to know, like uh, from that, that month where you, you know, took carbs off the plate, um, how long did it take from that time to fully understanding your diet? So when I took carbs out for a month, it was my freshman year. So it was 2000, 2005 to 2006. And it wasn't until 2011 when I found out about my food allergies. So, I mean, it was a good four years of this re- terrible relationship of food and feeling safer if I didn't eat 
versus unknown pain of stomach aches if I did. And um, like, you know, just the, simply the relationship with my body and feeling so much healthier and secure and knowledgeable about what's going into my body, how it's going to make me feel and knowing what to eat before I race, like everything changed once I found out about these food sensitivities. Do you think there were things that you look back and you, oh, I, missed, I missed that signal or there were things I could have done to accelerate um, you know, the diagnosis or the understanding? Um, were there any sort of important things that maybe other people can look out for? I wish that I had had continued to speak up about the stomach aches. That, that was part of, I think, me not wanting to complain that it w because it was affecting me every day, it got harder and harder to continually speak up that this is an issue. And then when I would go to the hospital, it was more seen as this one incident and not really getting to dive into the fact that I was living with stomach aches every single day, that your stomach shouldn't hurt like that every day. And to go out and actively seek answers, uh, that you should feel healthy with and food should feel good to put into your body and you should feel stronger. And if you're living with daily stomach aches, that to go actively pursue why and try to get that figured out. What are the long-term effects of being diagnosed so late? Are there any consequences versus if you were diagnosed much, much earlier for these intolerances, uh, allergies? I don't think there's long-term term effects in terms of mine being sensitivities, or at least I haven't heard that besides possibly in my training, having dealt with so many injuries and fatigue and, and swelling. And I don't think, you know, they've had a long-term effect in terms of my health right this moment. So yeah, to the best of my knowledge, not, not right now, but I do wonder how fast or, you know, how my training would have differed, my recovery would have been better, different things earlier on if I had been diagnosed earlier. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then how do you make sure restaurants who say they are serving gluten-free food really do provide gluten-free food so they don't get sick later on? Because, you know, it's things that you can't see. You really have to trust them when they say that there's no gluten in something. Yes. And... You know, that's when I, I feel like it's harder if you are celiac and it's, you know, maybe that I, that's at least my, my understanding because I know the symptoms that I have if, if I end up having small amounts of gluten and I can kind of detox and, and work on getting it out, but I don't have the, the damage being done to my intestines that people with celiacs would have. And so while I'm diligent, I'm as diligent as I can be without, I think, that level of, of fear of, of cross-contamination at such a small level. But knowing that there are places that are more certified, guaranteed, that you can go. There's a, a place actually here in my hometown that there is no gluten in the restaurant. Like you can't bring groceries, outside groceries in. Everything in this restaurant is gluten-free. It's not egg-free, um, but they do have vegan gluten-free options. Thank you. Thank you. You've been so open and patient. I really appreciate it because I know that's a hard 
topic to talk about and be so open about. And I think it'll help a lot of people too, for people who, you know, may be ashamed or just, just don't know what's going on. I think it'll, it'll be really helpful. So next I want to talk about goals. I know you, you love to plan and have big dreams, big goals, and then divide those goals up into, you know, something that's more incremental and doable on a day-to-day, week-by-week, month-by-month basis. Um, so what is your biggest goal outside of swimming at the moment? So I am working at an architecture firm that I absolutely have enjoyed. And it was a, a dream of mine early on. And, uh, but I, with swimming, I kind of pursued that. And I was like, okay, I can always go to school. I can, I can pursue architecture later. And I started doing healthcare design. And it was at the grand opening of my college, of Cal Berkeley's new pool. And so I was invited to the grand opening and I gathered all my strength. And I said, I would go introduce myself to the lead architect. And I walked up and shook his hand and said I was passionate about architecture. I was just starting off in my schooling. And uh, four months later, he called me into his office and uh, he's like, I know that you're pursuing healthcare design, but do you realize how much you know about aquatic facilities and inner workings and what works and what doesn't? And now with my kids and swim lessons and fun water pools and I just, I don't know if it was too close to home to think about at the time, but it's just been an, an amazing transition from going from one dream right into the next. Mm-hmm. That's wonderful. And you're so eloquent. I could tell you've been public speaking, so articulate. I think it's great that you've brought just different aspects of your identity, the hard parts and the glamorous parts to contribute to society and outside of swimming. The swimming gave you this huge platform because of your hard-earned success. And now you're using it for other things that you're also passionate about, liberating people in different ways, you know, talking about your gluten allergy, talking about your heart condition, talking about all these other things that, that you've experienced in your life. So I think it's wonderful. Thank you. I, got, I felt like I got tired of... Um this is in my speech as, as well, that it's like from a really young age, I felt like I understood what people wanted me to say, how I was supposed to act, how, how you overcome obstacles with a positive face and you keep pushing and you know the, the never stop fighting for your goal. And, and I felt like I put on this superwoman suit that I was tough and confident and you could throw anything at me. And then the stronger that that suit got, like the, the less authentic and the less true to myself, the more exhausting it was to, to go into an interview and feel like I had to put this mask on of who I thought people wanted to hear and to really start to strip that off and be okay with, with who I am and to know that speaking out about these different struggles in my career, it's not me complaining and woe is me that no it's it is about educating and that i hid them and i think that that was half the problem that if we can just be open and speak honestly about what we're going through then we can actually deal with these issues when they come up instead of having them last for so many years Mm -hmm. yeah very well said definitely in terms of, I know you say you retired a year ago, but what are your thoughts on the Tokyo Olympics? 
it, it being delayed until 2021. Do you have any goals in terms of more indirect goals? I know you're probably not competing competitively. No, definitely not competing. And uh, I mean, for me personally, it was it was one of those moments of like, wow, I, I, I really think I retired at the best time for me. I think I was just kind of trying to push through to see if I could keep going and to find the balance of the excitement of all these new things in my life that I wanted to pursue versus the, what I had already accomplished in the sport. And, um, but then at the same time, kind of relief for myself that I had retired and then just heart wrenching for these athletes. And, uh, you know, you set up four years. It's, timing it's you know there are there are athletes that right now perfectly hit it and then are at the peak of their game right now and now they have to wait another year and you never you just never know like that's half i feel like that's some of the excitement in sport is that anything can happen in a race and you never know but it's also the scary part in being the athlete that now they have to train for another year and hope that they don't get injured and put everything that they can into now hopefully reaching that peak again in one more year. And it was also, I felt hard that you're given this news that the Olympic Games is going to be postponed a year. And to not want to show that, that how hard that is, because at the same time, the world is going through COVID-19 and people are losing their lives. And there's so much pain and fear in the world that how do you say that, oh, I'm sad because the Olympic Games is postponed a year. That, you know, it, it, so I feel for the athletes in that sense as well, that it's frustrating and it's, it's infuriating that, that the world was in that state and that the Olympic Games got moved and and I wish them the best of luck in training for another year and wanting to support them. And uh, that ev uh, trying to reiterate that no matter what people are feeling right now, that it's valid and that it's real. And it's devastating to have lost loved ones. And it's a different kind of devastating to, to be at home and to know that you're safe. And um, it's just a whole world of change and challenge and to just to stop us, anybody from judging each other and my pain's worse than your pain and trying to just hold that people have pain and people have challenges and they process these things in different ways. And, uh, to just really try to be supportive of everyone and what they're going through. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very well said. I think it takes one to know one, right? Very few people compete at that level. And so you know the, the pain that those athletes went through to, to do that training, to be at that peak level and at this right time. With that, thank you so much. We've learned so much. I've learned a lot from you, a lot, a lot, even though I watched a ton of videos as well. Thank you for giving us an hour and 15 minutes of your time that you don't have, I'm sure. Jean, did you have any closing remarks for Dana? No, I just want to say thank you. Uh, it, it really helps. Uh, the, the more the messages can get out there about uh, you know, how different people have uh, faced their adversities and, and how to get over them, and even just speaking about them simply, 
it's really nice to hear. So, um, you know, I, I got a lot of uh, information out of that and I've been living, you know, dealing with uh, gluten-free type diets for about 10 years. So you, you learn a little bit every day and it, it all helps. So um, really appreciate speaking to you. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you both so much. It's nice to, to also not to, to be speaking with both of you, not on some sports platform where it's just all about sports performance, but it's so much more about life and all of these other elements that impact it. And so this was very exciting and, and uh, thank you. Thank you, Ming, for having me, both of you that having me on here today. I only know what it's like in America And shutting doors, I don't think that's right Thanks for listening to another Trips and Global on Wheels podcast hour. Look for us on Instagram, YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook where I post pictures of my travels, share videos of my fitness journey, and keep you updated on the latest wheelchair accessory must-haves. Tell others about our program. The more we can raise awareness about these issues, the stronger we can get as a community. At Trips and Global on Wheels, we aim to build a community of healthy, worldly and informed individuals with disabilities and disability advocates that means we want to hear from you our listeners send us an email at tgow podcast at gmail.com let us know about your favorite destinations for accessible travel how do you stay fit to avoid chronic injuries what language do you prefer to describe your identity as someone with a disability We want to provide a platform for people to share and learn from each other. So send us your stories. If you have suggestions for future guests that you would like to hear on our podcast series, please leave them in the Contact Us section of our website or post them on our Facebook page. Thanks again for listening. Bye-bye. And this is